Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to The Reason We Learn. I'm your host, Deb Philman, and this is the channel where we talk about all things related to education and the growth of the minds of our children, next generation, etc. Um, if you are new to the channel, please consider subscribing. And I would appreciate it if you would like and share this broadcast so we can have more people join us live. And then if you're watching on the replay, thank you for being here. Also consider liking, sharing, and commenting. I have a great guest today. I have Freddie DeBoer in, in our little you know, window here. Um, he has a fantastic Substack that I discovered through a friend. And I've been reading it pretty religiously for months. Um, he's also the author of a book, The Cult of Smart. And because I've read some of his pieces that pertain to things that I've been talking about on the channel, I asked him to please come and talk to us about them. And um, so I'm very excited about this. So without further ado, welcome, Freddie. Thanks for having me. You're so welcome. Uh, you're doing me a favor, really. Um, so as I mentioned before we went live, the piece that resonated with me so much was one you wrote back in the end of April, April 27th, nobody walks around feeling valid. Stop creating impossible emotional expectations for our culture. I would love for you to just talk about what you wrote in that piece. I'm directing everyone to read it, by the way, but at the same time, I'd love to hear from you, your thoughts on this topic. Sure. So um, <clears throat> the piece is a response to a uh the concept of validity, of personal validity, um, which has arisen specifically in response to particular issues of identity um, and complaints that people from marginalized identities are uh, <clears throat> made to feel invalid or less valid than other people. Um, I don't doubt and have never doubted that there's all manners of, way, in, of ways in which uh, people from various um, minority groups are uh, in some sense disrespected or sidelined by our society. But the problem with fixating so much on saying, well, black people are made to feel invalid, uh, women are made to feel invalid, trans people are made to feel invalid, et cetera, is that it implies that there is some alternative. And that <clears throat> the alternative is that people who belong to dominant identities walk around feeling great about themselves all the time. Um, and as a white straight man, uh, I can tell you that I certainly don't walk around on a cloud of positive feelings about myself. Um, none of the white straight men that I know and I'm close with do either. Um, and it's just, uh, I think that it is a, uh, a classic example of um, failing to understand that it's perfectly possible for one group to be um, <clears throat> in some sense disadvantaged without imagining that things are great on the other side. And um, in particular, you know, this idea of validity, um, I don't know what that word means. I don't know what it would mean to feel valid. I don't know on what scale we are considering the questions of being valid or invalid. Um, it seems to me to be intentionally vague for the purpose of, you know, being better able to be integrated into Instagram memes, right? So, you know, part of the reason that this is a, a an important issue to me is that it's very, very prevalent in social media, particularly social media for young people, uh, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Tumblr, et cetera, um, that on these networks, uh, the concept of, you, you know, you are valid, you should feel valid um, is omnipresent, just inescapable. <clears throat> but um, <clears throat> there's this old meme like, um, you know, uh, you know, God granted the confidence of a mediocre white man, right? Which of course, like, implies that mediocre white men actually feel uh, 
confident. And right. most of the most of the white men of you know any particular um, <clears throat> level of competence or success that I know don't feel that way. Um, <clears throat> and so I think that uh, you know just creating a, an impossible emotional expectation under the guise of doing something for people in terms of like a self-help sort of a scenario. And it's an irony that I've observed over and over again. So even outside of like the concept of validity, um, <clears throat> women's inspirational Instagram memes <clears throat> are something that I have um, uh, sort of looked on with a sort of grim fascination for, for many years. And um, in the past, I've called them sociopath instructions because they uh, are basically telling people to live as if they are the only human being who is, exists. You know, they are all about how you have to ruthlessly pursue your goals and your desires and your dreams, how nothing else matters, how <clears throat> you shouldn't let anything like concern for other people get in the way of what you want. And among other things, I mean, number one, I think that that is a uh, <clears throat> socially not a good message for us to be giving to anyone because um, we live in a community and we have to be uh, mindful of the fact that um, other people's interests are as important as ours are, but also because um, it doesn't work, right? Like the women wouldn't constantly be posting these memes if they actually felt the way that they you know, are pretending to feel, right? I mean, one of the <clears throat> things that I believe is universally true is that people who feel compelled to tell you that they're strong are weak, right? Because actually strong people don't, don't bother to try to broadcast that fact. And so this is all very new and tied to sort of identity politics in one sense, and to current contemporary social media norms. But it's also part and parcel with the self self esteem movement, which really um, <clears throat> got going in the 1970s. Uh, and was connected to uh, <clears throat> all manner of sort of weird uh, <clears throat> schools of philosophy and meditation. And um, I think Est was uh, something that. Yeah, was, that was part, big then. Mm -hmm. It was part of, you know, all this stuff. Um, and uh, again, like back then, you know, the, the, the terminology change was different, but the, um, the basic idea was the same, which is that like your job is to feel good about yourself all the time. Like self-esteem, if you have self-esteem, you, you, you care about yourself and you respect yourself and you love yourself, et cetera. And the first problem with that is that um, there's been a lot of studies done and there's no correlation between someone's sense of self-esteem and their overall level of personal success. Uh, there's no correlation between self-esteem and how well they treat other people. Right. Like people who 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 love themselves, treat others well is one of the baked into this ideology, but it doesn't appear to be true. But again, also, um, it's perverse in the sense that um, loving yourself is some, just something else you can fail at. Right. Yeah. So, like, so if you talk about like if you look at like, you know, how gendered this um, uh, <clears throat> dialogue has become and how intensely focused it is in women's spaces online, um, the commandment to love yourself becomes just another bar that women can't clear, right? It just becomes another expectation that society puts on women that um, is not realistic or fair. And I find that, um, like I said, perverse, right? It is um, the desire to love yourself becomes something that you can't achieve. And because of that, you hate yourself. Right, right. And I think there's still, while it's not as explicit with boys and men, there's a lot of hate directed at men. And then the self-esteem movement for women implies, and sometimes it's explicit, there's a barrier created by men, like that men are in the way of your self-esteem. 
And then if you're a man, it, you know, the message to you is get out of the way. And the guy might be going, I'm not in your way. Like, I don't care, you know, go do your thing. So, so much of it feels, um, aggressively antagonistic, even while it's saying to one side, you know, go feel good about yourself. I pick up and you guys are the problem. And so now you've got men also feeling like I'm, you know, I'm being made to feel responsible for something I didn't even, I'm not even involved with at all. Um, I, I mean, I think the irony of it is that um, there's a long history within the feminist movement and within women, um, women's spaces um, of <clears throat> the biggest enemy being other women in practical terms. So um, uh, Ty Grace Atkin Atkinson, uh, who was a second wave feminist, a contemporary of Shulamith Firestone in that, uh, that uh, group, um, she has a, a famous line, which is, um, Sisterhood is powerful. Uh, it kills mostly sisters, right? Um, which, you know, and um, there was a, a famous article called uh, Trashing that came out in that era too, which I think might, was it Joe Freeman? I'm trying to think of who wrote it anyway. Um, but it was all about how, you know, the biggest impediment to success for the second wave feminists was the in incredible amount of infighting and tearing up down of each other that happened, right? So, um, yeah, there is a sense in which patriarchy, right, is the thing that is keeping women from feeling good all the time. Um, I think patriarchy, to be honest with you, is quite indifferent to whether women uh, feel good about themselves. In fact, I, I think completely that, agree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I think that to the degree that patriarchy exists, and it does exist in some ways and to some degree, but to the degree to which patriarchy exists, it would rather women feel great about themselves even as the power dynamics may remain what they are. But the, you know, um, <clears throat> women are, you know, there's a notorious tendency among some women um, to uh, be unable to uh, maintain both the sense of being a driven person who has value and self-esteem and wants to take care of themselves and also to uh, <clears throat> be unable to avoid uh, carrying each other down. So I don't think that the, that the problem is gendered. I think the problem again is that, um, you know, I mean, I, what I would always say to anyone is, you know, who told you that you were entitled to love yourself, right? And to me, um, that just seems like a very weird thing even to desire, let alone to demand, right? You know, like mm -hmm. um, I am um, someone who enjoys um, <clears throat> now a, a pretty good deal of, uh, physical comfort of socioeconomic security. Uh, I live in, in Brooklyn and I enjoy a, a, an enviable life. And, you know, I'm a published author and I have a PhD. Da, 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 da. Um, but I don't walk around feeling self-love because that's just weird to me, right? Like that's not, I, that's not the deal that, that, you know, we're sort of handed as human beings. Um, I think that avoiding punishing uh, depression or anxiety both of which are medical conditions that I think uh, can be effectively treated with modern medicines and with therapy in some situations. Uh, I think that I get, but like the notion that I'm supposed to just exist in a default state of liking myself uh, is very alien to me, right? Mm -hmm. I go about my day. I feel pretty good if things are going good. If they're not, I feel pretty bad, but I don't have this sort of ambient sense of like self-love that pervades everything. And I just think that that's not a normal thing to want. I mean, I, you know, 
not to get too big picture, but um, it's always worth reminding people that for 300,000 years, uh, we evolved in an environment in which um, we were hunter-gatherers who lived in small bands of maybe 20 people at the most who right. uh, roamed across the plains and had to watch out for being attacked by saber-toothed tigers and uh, gathering nuts and berries um, and just had very small social worlds and just a profoundly different sort of environment. Right. Um, agriculture and civilization are maybe 10 to 12,000 years old. So we lived like that for vastly longer than we've lived like this. And we had much, much more time to evolve, including our brains, according to that environment. So if you say, why is anxiety so endemic in contemporary society? Well, again, um, anxiety makes a lot of sense. If you are at significant risk of being eaten by an animal, you know, at any particular time, right? You want to be in a state of constant watchfulness. Now we find ourselves in this environment that's not suited to us. So again, for 300,000 years, we lived in a very calorie poor environment, right? It was hard to get your hands on enough food to survive. Now we live in an impossibly calorie dense environment. So it's not surprising that we have uh, epidemics of obesity and uh, high blood pressure, et cetera, right? But it's also the same with the mind, right? Where one of the things we all have to reconcile is that we have minds that are still we have brains, at least, that are uh, that evolved to fit um, conditions uh, of the Stone Age, and we live in vastly, vastly different uh, circumstances. And even in the last 25 years, 25, 30 years, you have the rise of the Internet, which has dramatically upscaled the number of relationships that everyone has to be um, managing at all times. Again, we don't know that our brain is meant to do that. So, I mean, self-love just seems like I don't know why you would beat yourself up about needing to feel it. Right. And I, you know, you, you described it in the, in the piece, you said, it's important to point out that we're born in terror. We exist for no reason. I know there's people who argue with that, but whatever right. we experience confusion and shame as children. That's a, that's something I try to explain to parents all the time. Like this is normal. Mm -hmm. This is completely normal. Like, you know, in reminding your children, this is part of growing up and maturing. It's not some horrible thing they have to fix. And, um, you know, it says it, uh, we busily prepare ourselves for lives we don't want or can't can't have. We're forced to take on the burdens of adult responsibility. We compromise relentlessly on what life we pursue. We settle and settle and settle. We fear death and ponder our meaningless, et cetera. And the thing that you've just described, some people will say like, oh, gosh, what a bummer. But let's be real here. That's just reality. You're born. You're also born in poverty. I mean, we're all, but you know, like what you have comes from the effort of your parents or grandparents or you or whatever, and or the people around you. It's not. You're not born into a state of being by virtue of anything else. It's been the effort of other people, and we we seem to be so resistant to accepting these basic realities, and we're now teaching our children their problems. Mm -hmm that have to be solved. And the earlier we get to you to solve them, the more likely we'll be able to do it. They seem to completely reject something you mentioned before the show started, which is nature. Mm -hmm. And you've just hinted at it right now. Can you expound on that a little bit more about what, how we're born? Cause you talked about personality okay. too. Yeah. I mean, um, first, like, again, like, I mean, I think that um, <clears throat> one of the things I encountered when I was writing and promoting my first book was that uh, um people are very resistant to being reminded that they are fundamentally animals and uh, <clears throat> that, um, you know, we did not, you know, we don't have any special endowment that lets us escape, you know, part of the basic 
broken deal of being alive. Um, and part of that is um, that uh, our genes, uh, which we don't choose and can't control, have profound impacts on who we are and the lives that we lead. Uh, this remains controversial because people really don't want to hear it. Uh, but there's an overwhelming amount of research that suggests that many of our personality traits are, in fact, uh, uh, influenced by genes uh, and in some sense intrinsic and unchangeable. So uh, there's no reason to believe that we can take fundamentally anxious uh, and um, <clears throat> uh shy people and make them calm and confident people right there's just there's never been any reason to think that that's true um, we carry around this sort of vaguely freudian idea that um well you know everything about our personalities uh depends upon things that happened to us very early in childhood and it's all about these early traumas and they shape us and make us who we are um, there's never really been any evidentiary basis for that uh, Freud simply, uh, certainly never thought that he had to have any evidence for anything that he said. Um, but that idea sort of haunts the species. And, um, you know, um, we all have our burdens to bear in terms of who we are. Um, I'm not, I don't advocate nihilism in terms of like improving yourself or making yourself happier or um, changing your life. I think that people can do that. Um, but you have to understand that um, it's just like your body, right? Um, if someone is 300 pounds and they want to get down to 275 pounds, I think that that's a good goal and that, you know, with a lot of hard work um, and care, they can probably do it. If somebody is 300 pounds and they want to get down to 180 pounds, I would say that goal in and of itself is not realistic and you're going to end up doing more harm to yourself uh, than, uh, than good. Um, if I had decided when I was five years old, that I wanted to be an Olympic sprinter, that I wanted to run the 100 meters. It doesn't matter if I had trained every day of my life from that point forward, if I had the best coaching you could possibly have, the best training and nutrition, et cetera, I would never have gotten anywhere close to the podium, right? Because that's not, that's not my nature. I'm not physically able to do that. People accept those things, right? Like we have a growing understanding that um, while we want people to be as healthy as they can be, um, there is a degree to which your weight is out of your control, right? In which you have, which your genes are, are predisposing you, you to a particular outcome. Um, <clears throat> with the mind, people will not accept that. With personality, they won't accept that, right? I mean, this is, you know, I always say that there's only one bit of wisdom we ever learn about our, our romantic relationships, right? Like the one lesson is always the same, which is you can't change the other person, right? Um, but we desperately want to, right? We always think, okay, you know, uh, he's great. He's got everything I need. I just need to make him much more thoughtful and less sloppy and much more caring. And right. And, and, and then when I get that, everything's going to be great. But um, you ha we have to relearn over and over again. You can't do that, right? You, you cannot make the other person into something that they're not. And, and the person you could do that to, you probably wouldn't want when you were done. Right. I mean, if, if, if some is that malleable? Right. Yeah, it would be a little problem. scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's the same way with ourselves, right? Um, I have bipolar disorder. Um, you know, I spent 15 years of my life in and out of uh, psychiatric hospitals. Um, it took me a long time to accept that uh, I could get into treatment and I am in treatment and have been for five years, which is great. And that I can 
make better or worse choices, but I can't turn that off. There's nothing I can do to make myself not be that way. And I wish people would accept the fact that there are fundamental aspects of themselves that um, as much as they may not like them, they probably can't really change them. So how can I find ways to mitigate those things that I can actually do in my real life? And I think that that applies to the commandment to love yourself, which is that like, okay, I don't feel great about myself. If I think back, to be honest, I've never felt great about myself. I didn't feel great about myself the day that I got uh, into my into Yale or whatever somebody might do. I never, I didn't feel great about myself the day I got graduated from med school. I didn't feel great about myself the day I married my high school sweetheart. You know, these things don't suddenly, you know, we feel good, we feel happiness, but we don't suddenly have a personality change where we start loving ourselves. So maybe I can accept it's not about events and it's not about what I succeed in doing. That there's some baseline of in me right? That okay. of how much I, how good I feel about myself on a day-to-day basis. And yeah, there are some people out there who just sort of walk around feeling good about themselves. And you know what? Good for them, right? Like right. they're the lucky right. ones. But the rest of us have to ask, is it worth investing a lot of psychic energy um, into worrying about, can I start to love myself? Or should I put that someplace more fruitful? Um, try to be good to myself when I can, right? Like think of the ways, think of the, the, of the simple things that I do in my life that make me feel better rather than worse and do those things, but to give up on this project, right? To just, right. To, to have to feel good all the time. But the problem is anyone who has that thinking just has to open Instagram, right? Has to, yeah. open, has to open TikTok. And they're being assaulted again with the idea that if they're not loving themselves all the time, they're failing, which I just think is just gross. And they're being encouraged to into groupings or labels that they're told make them valid or will give them validity because they command the world to accept them. You know, people are pretty savvy, and especially if you're if you're told like, hey, you want to feel better in your own skin. These are the groups that have some protection. These are the groups that people now have to celebrate, not just, you know, validate, but celebrate and and defer to and so forth. And if you're, let's say, a preteen or a teenager, and that's hard enough for, you know, any of us, right? That And somebody like TikTok or the teacher at school says, you know, we have to accept this. We have to accept these people. We have to treat these people a certain way. Then the impulse to become one of those people or emulate one of those people is probably fairly intense. And I know I'm going to ruffle feathers saying that, but we, we used to know it when it was being a jock or being, a, you know, a punk or being whatever. Mm-hmm. And now when you mention it and say, well, maybe it has to do with some of the gender affirmation stuff or whatever, people, oh my God, no, no, that's intrinsic. They just feel like that. I'm like, okay, tell me what it feels like to be a man. What does it feel like to be a woman, right? And I, I when I see this validation thing, I can't help but feel like, they're told they should be validated to feel good about themselves because we're, they're told they should be feel, feeling good about themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, follow that path to where we are. Well, I mean, look at, so, um, you know, I, when I was in my late twenties, I worked for a couple of years for the uh, a public school district in my local, uh, my, my hometown. And um, one of the things that I did for several months is I worked in a uh, special education classroom. Um, <clears throat> and there was a, uh, a couple of kids there who were autistic, um, who, I mean, uh, one of them was very uh, uh, severely restricted in what uh, she could do or say. The other one was completely nonverbal, um, couldn't go to the bathroom by himself, um, was 
um, debilitated by this condition. And uh, I used to talk to his mom when she would come to get him. And uh, this was in 2008 or so. And so it is prior to the sort of rise of modern identity stuff when it comes to autism. But she was very, very, um, she had a very uh, dark view of uh, the autism awareness industry, right? Interesting. Um, she was, uh, she said that, um, she would say that, you know, what does awareness do for me, right? Uh, <clears throat> how does awareness help me deal with a child who, um, every indication, I mean, this kid was by now like 11 years old, every indication was that he was going to spend the rest of his life needing um, constant and intense support. Uh, and to her, awareness was just a, a dodge, a way to sort of try to put a pretty face on what was a terrible disability. Well, now at, in 2022, you can't even call autism a disability. So there was just a panel at Harvard uh, that was canceled uh, because it referred to treatment of autism. Uh, and students said that to speak of treatment is violently ableist is the word term that they used. And that um, there, there can be no treatment for autism because there is no, there's nothing wrong with autism. Uh, autism is not a deficiency or a disability. It's just a different way of being. Uh, when, you know, I hear that, I think back to that mother who, um, you know, uh, had to spend her life dealing with a severely disabled child, um, always feeling that there was an adequate support for him. And um, I wonder what she would possibly think about that, right? Um, unfortunately, the existence of people with severe autism, with people who have faced really major disabilities that preclude their ability to succeed academically, that preclude their ability to hold down a job, that make it much harder for them to have any kind of romantic relationships, um, they're not out there writing essays for, you know, BuzzFeed or whatever, right? Like the people who um, have the wherewithal to be able to create the public face of autism now are people who, um, whose, you know, autism is mild and doesn't produce those kinds of, um, uh, of very, you know, really severe um, restrictions. And so they're telling a story about autism that it's just a quirky personality trait. And it says, you know, now <clears throat> I have absolutely no interest uh, in saying that people who have mild autism and whose personalities manifest themselves that way, um, that there's anything that they should be doing differently. It's not my business. Mm -hmm. I don't care. Right. Um, <clears throat> but I, first of all, uh, I think that um, if you refuse to call something a disability, then you uh, abdicate your right to demand accommodation, right? So when we give people accommodations for disabilities, right? The Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990, um, it says that, you know, the legal standard is we need to provide every reasonable accommodation, which is important, not any possible accommodation, but any reasonable accommodation. Um, but that is that, that legal standard and that social understanding stems from the fact that we acknowledge that disabilities are disabilities, right? They are um, <clears throat> deficiencies and, and to some, sometimes truly debilitating and disabling, um, uh, <clears throat> and that people can't control it. Um, and under those auspices, we give uh, accommodations. If you're going to say there's nothing wrong with me, I don't have a disability, then I think that you've given up the standing to be able to say, I, de I demand an accommodation. Um, right. Again, um, 
you know, neuro, neuroatypicality is, uh, uh, I just wrote about this recently. Um, it was originally used to speak about autism. Um, it had people have sort of thrown more and more disorders into it. Um, it depends mm -hmm. on the definition you look at, but some right. people include schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and even anxiety and depression. And, you know, um, I, you know, I have no, I, I, I cannot imagine a world in which I would assign myself the, uh, laurel of neuroatypicality. Um, but um, more importantly, um, I would give anything to be neurotypical, right? Uh, my bipolar disorder has cost me immensely in my life. Um, there are a number of lifelong friendships that I've lost because of my behavior under that um, uh, in that standing, uh, did immense professional damage to myself, academic damage, et cetera. And it sucks and I hate it. And I, you know, I've, uh, I never stopped wishing that I didn't have it. Right. And, right. you know, the notion that I'm supposed to love it, right. It then the notion that it's not enough that I have to suffer with it, but now the commandment is that I must love myself and apparently every aspect of myself, right. Um, is bizarre and insulting to me. And um, I would never tell someone that they have to love their diabetes and treat that right. as, as an identity, right? I mean, it's the same thing for me, right? You know, you can call yourself whatever you want, but don't demand that I see something that has cost me so much in my life as some sort of like secret advantage because it's not. Right. And that's I, that's a really good point. And I think um, one that not enough people question, either the demand is made it's made loudly and very, you know, publicly and, and, and often. And so a lot of people just go along with it because I think we have as a society an addiction to being perceived as nice and the nice gets defined by other people too much. You know, it's kind of like whoever they're, whether it's mass media, whatever it is, it's like, this is what it means to be a good person, a nice person. You will validate, you will celebrate, you will do these things. And so if you're, as you're, you know, doing, if you're just questioning it and saying, why should I even just asking the question, but, but why I don't want to, I disagree. You're now horrible. Like, you know, you're a bigot, you're a hater, you're ableist, all those things. And, um, when I think of children who are just figuring out the world, they're brand new here. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, they go to school or they're dealing with the, all the media bombarding them. And I did learn the other day, it's about to your point earlier, it's about 20 lifetimes worth of information compared to someone born in 1910. Right. So if you just take that as a measurement, it's about 20 lifetimes worth of just verbal information, not just forget visual. And so, you know, I'm just trying to imagine, I remember being a kid very well and all the confusion associated. Now I'm trying to jettison myself into today as that same kid with these people saying, this is what it means to be good. And this is what you have to do. And this is what you have to celebrate. I, when would I have the quiet and the space in my own head to just come to terms with what I, what I am to even just figure out what, what I am in there. And, and not just, I, I can't imagine that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I thank God that I grew up without social media. Um, I don't right. know. <clears throat> I mean, I don't know how uh, I would have developed a healthy sense of self um, uh, if right. my brain was constantly running, rubbing up against the brain of my peers at all times. Um, and, uh, I really do feel for these kids. Um, yeah, you know, I, 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 I mean, I, I agree with you that there's probably no political solution to these problems. Um, I do think that, 
it's going to become more and more obvious um, that these social networks and the constant in internet connectivity and the smartphones really is doing um, an immense amount of damage to developing uh, brains. And, you know, a guy like Jonathan Haidt, who, who has um, uh, published repeatedly, um, uh, showing that there is like a, a causal negative effect on all manner of psychological indicators um, uh, by having access to social media. You know, at some at some point, I hope somebody comes up with a drastic solution. Um, you know, I would I would gladly. It's the problem is it's unenforceable. But if it was enforceable, I would gladly ban social media for anybody under the age of eighteen because I just think that the um, you know these kids aren't prepared to know. I mean, the thing is, is human beings always have and have always had a problem with uh, being overly invested in the opinion of others, particularly when it comes to their own worth or value, right? The sort of constant sort of crowdsourced sense of like, I am what other people make of me. Um, now take that and it, you're sort of, excuse me, um, you're sort of farming that out to uh, uh, thousands and thousands of strangers. I don't know. It really worries me. Yeah, I agree. And I wanted to ask you your take on the, the concept being pushed right now in schools, or I shouldn't say concept, the value, the highest value right now is something called equity. Yeah. And you can't look at any of the documentation in it from the schools around you know curriculum or even what their new self-esteem thing is social emotional learning. And it's always connecting social justice to equity. And they have in the equity, this feelings component. So they're not talking even, you know, people say, well, it's about equal outcomes, which in and of itself is absurd, because as you pointed out, we're all different, we're with different talents, different abilities. And I would love as a teacher and as a parent to just figure out what my kids' unique abilities and talents are and help them, you know, pursue that, not make them equal to all the other kids or all the other kids down to wherever they are. But it's more than that. They're, they're pushing feelings. Like everyone should feel a sense of belonging. Everyone should feel X. There's this should and feel next to each other connected with equity. And that scares the living daylights out of me. I don't, I don't even know who came up with that as this is a good idea, but I'm curious what your thoughts on it are. Yeah. I mean, so like, look, the, the concept of equity as opposed to equality is that, uh, Equity means that you do what's necessary to create equal outcomes, even if the treatment is very different. So, um, I mean, it, for one thing, it uses a very, uh, I think, um, dishonest definition of what equality was. So there's this very overused and to me terrible cartoon, which shows like equality is some people are peering over the fence at a, uh, some kids are peering over the face at a, at a baseball game and they all have one box to stand on but they have three very different heights so um they have three very different views anyway that's equality um i don't know of any definition of equality that would ever look at that system and be like yeah, yeah this is good like it's a, i the idea that equality has heretofore meant like perfectly equal treatment um like that that's not a that's never been an, a, a notion of equality that's just the default right that's just you know not doing anything um so the first of all it's just a bogus sort of contrast but yeah equity is about um you know what are we going to do to have exactly as many black kids in harvard uh as uh or or the senate or whatever <laughs> or getting 1600s on the sats as white or asian or, or anything else um the first thing is that the, these you know, in the long run, equity will always fail, right? 
Like, I think that there are some conservatives who are overly concerned with what about a world where we really do have equality of, of outcomes? No, and reality is going to win way before that. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen, right? It, it can't. I mean, Planes <laughs> will fall out of the sky. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, one thing that I that I mention all the time is that, um, you know, Marxism has nothing to do with equality. And the assumption that the purpose of Marxism is to establish equality is a completely wrong uh notion a, a completely uh, a complete misconception about what the philosophy is about and in fact marx often talked about the fact that after you go through a marxist revolution there's still lots of summative inequality right because people are different right um the like so the famous marxist phrase from each according to his ability to each according to his need contains within it the notion that different people have different strengths right and this is the sort of the idea that underlies my whole first book which is that um you know uh demanding equal outcomes from unequal inputs um, ultimately does more harm to the people who you're, who you're think you're helping than anyone else. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. It's not going to happen. Right. At some point, like, look, like um, we have in this country, a dramatically reduced the high school dropout rate over the past 25 years um, with no underlying educational data that would suggest that that's appropriate. Right. If I mean, when you look at the fact um, that, for example, um, you know, uh, in 1980 or 1985, um, Hispanic students, um, something like um, almost four in 10 uh, Hispanic students were dropping out of high school before graduation. Um, now it's less than one in 10. Um, uh, the whole across the whole system, um, and in all racial demographics, the high school graduation rate has dramatically declined. Now it's in uh, the, the single digits. Some of the dropout rate nationally is, I don't know, I'd have to look it up, but it's like nine or eight or seven percent. Um, but there's no reason to believe that that actually reflects educational growth. Right. Like right. the the right. metrics of success for our seniors, for for people at the end of high school should be getting better if uh, there is reason to believe that this increase in the graduation rate is real and there is no such data. And so what's right. happened instead is that. Um, for decades and decades, the policy apparatus applied pre more and more pressure and demanded and demanded, get these kids out the door. Um, and so schools and teachers responded by just artificially graduating people who shouldn't graduate. Right. Um, they get pushed up into uh, the college system. Yeah. I can tell you as someone who worked at CUNY, the City University of New York, which um, has a lot of really great students. It also has community colleges with students who are um, severely academically uh, underprepared. Um, the pressure to get the kids out the door there is enormous, right? You, you need to keep the kids in the system. I mean, that's mostly a matter of dollars and cents, right? So schools like CUNY are super exposed to um, their uh, enrollment rate because they need tuition dollars. They don't have big endowments that they can level off of. So they need tuition dollars and um, they uh, uh, there's a lot of pressure to keep kids in the system, mm -hmm. even when they've demonstrated over and over again um, that they don't have what it takes to be a college student. Mm -hmm. um, the thing is, is that um, sooner or later that hurts them. Right. Yeah. Because you're going to put them out onto the street and they're going to show up for job interviews and they're going to have these resumes and they're going to be given opportunities to demonstrate what they can do. And it's going to be apparent to most of uh, those people doing the hiring that um, 
they're not ready, that they don't have the skills that they need. And even if they get a job, when they show up on the job, if you're a computer right. scientist who can't hack, who can't code, uh, exactly. you, you will be out on the street. You're not actually helping those kids at, at all. No. Um, equity has no real end game, right? There's, there's no sense in which it actually helps people the most. The, the equity is deeply tied to what I call the, um, the rainbow oligarchy, right? Which is that um, what liberalism right now writ large appears to be trying to do is to diversify the elite so that it looks proportional to the rest of the country while leaving the vast majority of people unaffected, right? So again, it's more black faces at Harvard, right? It's uh, more black faces in Congress, uh, more black faces in Fortune 500 companies, mm -hmm. more women on the board of Fortune 500 companies, more women software engineers at Google, right? Um, all of these are absolutely tiny, completely, you know, separated from normal life for most people. Um, they are elite in every sense. I just don't give a shit, right? Like it's not, I, I have no interest in a equally diverse Harvard because I know the, right. you know, the purpose of her, of Harvard, why Harvard exists is to perpetuate the, the class system, right? Like Harvard exists to maintain an elite that sort of, lives above all of the rest of us. Um, and I just don't have any interest in that. But the equity project is deeply yeah. tied up in this attempt to um, make it everything look representative at the top so that right. it will look more just so that people ask less hard questions about like the fundamental distribution of money and power in this country. You had a piece. Uh, why the fuck do you trust Harvard? Yeah, yeah. College admissions has, does, and will always serve only the institutions that are incredible greed. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because I talk about this college thing. I'm kind of glad you brought it up because one of the things that gets pushed a lot and it's it's used as a justification for many of these pedagogies now is we have to get them career in college ready. We have to get them career in college ready. And I'm like, why do we? Why do we have to? And who's we? And, and why are we treating these kids like they're a we? What about the individual little kid in front of you who may want to be a plumber or a writer or an artist or something else entirely and you're deciding when they're three that the goal of K-12 is to get them career in college ready? It seems... I don't know. Right. Just weird. So look, look at like, I mean, look, um, look at affirmative action at Harvard, right? Um, which is a really good indication of what these systems actually value and what they're for. Um, I'm a, a supporter of uh, race and class-based affirmative action um, in, for a variety of reasons. But if you look at what actually happens at a school like Harvard, right? Um, they're not going and finding, you know, budding geniuses um, in uh, Camden, New Jersey, or right. Fitchburg, Massachusetts. They're or just holding Fitchburg. you up to a Pantone card. <laughs> right. Like the, the kids who are benefiting from affirmative action at Ivy League schools, you know, uh, they are uh, the first generation children of wealthy African immigrants, right? There's an awful lot of kids whose parents are like uh, Nigerian surgeons uh, who make $300,000 a year. Um, you have, uh, there's also, there's a lot of class, if you're not supposed to classify international students, so students who literally, their citizenship is another country, uh, you're not supposed to classify them uh, as um, uh, filling diversity slots for affirmative action or other things, but it happens all the time. They'll find ways around it. They have, you know, funny ways to define things. So, um, 
you know, you have wealthy kids from Argentina, which is a dominantly white country, right, mm-hmm. who are who consider themselves white, um, but who are slotted as Hispanic slots for the diversity metrics, right? Um, you, I've even seen uh, some of the most incredible, which is that Spanish kids, as in from Spain, are sometimes coded as Hispanic uh, for the, the purposes. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's uh, you know, literally. Now, yeah. Now, why? Now, why? Right? Like, why? Why do these schools, you know, pursue students who um, sort of right. artificially? Um, uh, fill a diversity metric whose parents make a lot of money. Well, you have to understand that, like, you know, Harvard to specifically, you don't get a $45 billion endowment through tuition checks, right? Like, that's not how right. where their money comes from. Where their money comes from is um, students whose parents donate and who will go on to be wealthy enough to donate themselves as alumni, right? Correct. Um, yes. And so the easiest way to make sure you're going to get a student who does that is find a kid who's already rich, right? And right. so, like, that to me is a good indication of, you know, the deck is always rigged, right? Like even the the, the number of poor uh, American-born uh, descendants of African slaves who are benefiting from diversity programs at the, the most elite colleges is very, very small, right? Even though that's who is constantly invoked to defend the system. Um, and so it's just this notion that we're going to make Harvard or Yale or Princeton, we're going to make these socially just equitable spaces is a joke, right? Right. Um, you go back to the when these colleges were founded, there was no there was no notion of social justice being involved mm-hmm. in the mission of a college, right? I mean, you know, the Ivy League, it's specifically was founded in order to train the leaders of tomorrow, right? right? Mm-hmm. It was actually not like education was actually not considered to be the highest priority. The idea was these kids are wealthy wasp males who will go on to have positions in um, the heights of industry or in Congress or whatever. And they need to have a liberal arts education in order to to be good at running the country. Um, Over time, right, in the 20th century, um, a social justice justification was grafted onto our higher education system, right? As a way, oh, this is why you should pay. I mean, we pay um, something like two and a half or three percent of GDP, like two and a half percent of GDP, like it, two and a half cents out of every dollar created in this country goes to higher ed. It's insanely expensive, right? So, how do you justify that? Well, you justify it if you say this is not no longer a finishing school for elites, now it's uh, a social justice vehicle. Oh, but- it's leveling the playing field. It's letting, you know, people rise up in their, in their, you know, social status, except when you actually look at reality, it isn't really. Right. I mean, mean, it has to a certain degree, you'll always find, you know, people who have, but for the most part, no. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is like, um, you just, you can't ask these, these institutions to, um, go against their fundamental nature. Right. I mean, it's like the, the story of the, uh, the frog and the scorpion. Right. And, um, some people, sometimes people ask me, like, how can you make admissions at an Ivy League school fair or, or social justice or equitable? And I say, you can't, right? It's it's built. Make it not into, an Ivy League school. Right. Well, that's, <laughs> it's built into the system that that is not what they're for. And they said, well, what if you had um, lottery-based admissions, 
Now, I've said before, like, look, if I could restart the whole American higher education system, um, then every student, when they graduated from high school, if they want to go to college, um, they'd submit a postcard sized form, which is just you list the, the top 10 schools you want to go to. Um, <clears throat> Uh, and you're guaranteed to get admission to at least one of them. And then you, they're put into a weighted lottery and the weighting is determined by geography, right? Because one thing that people don't really realize about our system is that uh, something like 80% of students um, go to school within 30 miles of where they grow up, right? Like if for going away for college is ra quite rare, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, for uh, what that kid wants to study, you know, what does, what does the college do well? What does it need people to fill slots for, et cetera? Uh, I would have some sort of weighting to, in order to achieve, to achieve uh, racial and gender diversity, in part because kids don't want to go to schools that have really bad gender uh, bias in one direction or the other, et cetera. Um, and it would truly be a, uh, a, a random system other than that. Um, the problem is, right, if you do that, Harvard ceases to be Harvard, right? Like if, if you are distributing slots to the elite um, by lottery, uh, then there no longer is a perceived advantage to go to those schools anyway, right? Correct. Harvard's value is its exclusivity. If, right. they, if they open their doors, right? I mean, look, um, th these schools have not, in general, have not in expanded their uh, enrollments, even as the size of the population of teenagers is much larger than it once was. So um, it is much harder to get into college now than it was when I was applying to college in 1998 or 99. Right. Um, <clears throat> uh, it's much, much harder, right? Harvard has... Again, they got $50 billion or something like that. They have every ability to say, okay, we're going to let in twice as many students as we used to, right? Uh, there's a lot more teenagers. We got the money. Let's let them in. But they're never going to do that, right? Because mm -hmm. doing so would reduce the relative value of right. the admission, and they would take a tumble down rankings, right? And they're already, they're already going down in perceived value out in the marketplace where, you know, people who would have hired them yeah. because people are catching on that they're making these choices, not based on whether, as you said, they're not going out and finding the, the genius. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, they're making choices based on optics. They're making choices based on money. There's been grade inflation and they are not discouraging students from going in and majoring in things that really nobody wants. I mean, it's like, okay, that's well, you want to come here and study, you know, pick a something studies, right. <laughs> and, and, and validate yourselves more for four years. Um, but it, what, what are you going to sell that for? What's the, what is, you know, this whole back to validity, who's going to go out there and validate that with a paycheck. Right. I mean, okay. the thing is that, um, you know, uh, there is a, the social justice and identity based sort of political, uh, line of philosophy in our in our country right now there's also a sort of anti-capitalist and socialist sort of line of critique in our country um people who have one tend to endorse the other but it's important to understand that um the social justice identity stuff itself right um is in fact very cozy with the existing power structure right 100%. again mm -hmm. it's it's um you know, if you listen to what the people who are actually driving the conversation in that space want, they don't want to upset the apple cart. And mm -hmm. uh, they just want more people who look and sound like them 
to be making the, be the ones making millions. And at some point, there has to be an acknowledgement on the left-hand side of the country to which I belong um, that uh, it's just a fundamentally different project, right? Mm -hmm. To say, let's tear down the systems of inequality and uh, and hierarchy so that we have a more level society and that there's more you know, true equality for everyone. And I want, you know, queer BIPOC, BIPOC trans students to be at, at, in, in uh, Stanford, right? Like those are, those are right. fundamentally different. I, I need the, uh, a CEO, a trans CEO in a Fortune 500 company in the next five years or else we riot. Like those are just fundamentally different approaches to the whole thing. Right. And one, what I notice is that one, you know, the people who are really trying to make changes um, regardless of where they fall on the sort of political spectrum or, you know, like you and I might disagree about certain kinds of economic solutions, whatever, but we can have a rational conversation about solutions because we're starting at least living in reality mm -hmm. and describing the situation as it actually is not as, you know, what flatters us or what we sort of wish it would be. And then we're trying to find the areas of common ground. Like, okay, we both want the kids to have true equal opportunity to get the education they want to get that is, you know, pursues their personal goals and all that and utilizes the skills and the talents that they have to offer. Okay. Um, how do we best do that? Like you and I could have that conversation because we're not demonizing the other. We're not sitting there and saying, oh, you are this, you're, you're a bad person. And oh, you're that, you're a bad person. And you just said, you know, I fall on the left of the track. I'm like, okay, but you're brilliant and you have great ideas and you could, you've, you're analyzing these thoughtfully. And that's all I all I ever want from a person is just like, let's talk. And what I'm seeing is, as you said, you know, there's this very cozy relationship with the people pushing the junk into the schools with some big money makers, right. big for profit corporations. And they have cozy relationships with the government. And I'm trying to call that out and say, guys, this is not capital. Like, this isn't what capitalism is supposed to do. This, this is like fascism slash oligarchy slash cronyism. It's, a, you know, this is don't defend this. This isn't. It's not social justice, first of all, but it's also not even capitalism. What capitalism was intended to be, if you're talking about the kind where it's voluntary mutual exchange with transparency, this is BS. And but we can't have these conversations because people are falling into their tribal, mm -hmm. you know, like I'm a this. Well, I'm a that. I can't talk to you because you're a this, and I just don't. And they're doing it to our kids. And the problem I have with that is, adults, you know what? Mm. But with a, a kid needs has a right to arrive at these things organically and to be given the opportunity to empirically decide i like these ideas well wait i like these ideas you know and that's the whole point of america right that's why we freedom yeah. of speech i mean the other thing is that i mean um <clears throat> the you know the the problem with sort of saying that you're going to write the the dominant group out of the conversation is that the dominant group is dominant right like thank you um, like you know uh the fact that you can functionally ban certain conservative ideas from twitter the fact that those those harvard kids got that um completely uh uh benevolent and not trying to do any harm uh, panel banned on, on autism at uh, this, Harvard, this Harvard conference. The fact that um, you can perfectly police like um, the uh, available range of opinions at among New Yorker staff writers, right? Like 
that all has created a false sense of power and um, uh, among people who sort of have this worldview when, um, you know, the country is still uh, split uh, in thirds, right, <clears throat> between Democrats, Republicans, and people who will never vote. Uh, it is, uh, the country is not coherent politically on almost any topic. Um, like keep us out of wars is probably like one of the most like ones in which people are most consistent and easy to understand, but issue after issue. So abortion is very much in the, in the news right now. Um, and anyone who says, oh, the country's mostly pro-life or pro-choice, I don't think that they know what they're talking about because the, the polling is all very, very confused, right? So for example, um, clear majorities of people say that they support the Roe uh, precedent, but they will then also endorse restrictions that are illegal under Roe, right? Um, it is. It happens uh, all the time that people in polls will say, oh yes, I'm fiscally conservative, right? And then they want to expand Medicare and Social Security and say, don't cut anything, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, people yeah. just don't, most people just don't have coherent politics. But I think what they uh, absolutely will come together and punish is an attempt to um, uh, enforce from above a vision of what is and is not permissible uh, in the political sphere um, by people who don't have a majority uh, of the country behind them. And I think that, um, you know, I just think it's incredibly short sighted that people become so convinced by, again, like Twitter is a big part of this, where um, are in, are in the entirety of the media and academia classes are on Twitter 24-7. They're addicts. Um, and it's very much in not a representative space of the country writ large. Um, and they develop a sense that everybody agrees with them and that their mm -hmm. ideas are perfectly mainstream. Um, and sooner or later, they're going to find out that's not, that's not true. And, um, you know, um, I don't know if this uh, impending road decision will change things. Uh, in the fall, but certainly every indication is that um, we're going to have a bloodbath for Democrats in the midterm election in uh, in November. The problem is that I, I just think that the people who are in this world, um, you know, their ideas can never fail. They can only be failed. And I don't know that there's any shock to the system that could arrive that can knock them off of their perch and make them see, OK, we we need to change our approach fundamentally if we want to survive politically. Right. Right. There, I mean, I think the New York Times did a piece and I, I don't read it because it's behind a paywall, but the headline was something like uh, Democrats have forgotten rural America or have, have abandoned rural America. It was something along those lines. And people say all the time, well, who cares? No one lives there or that's the minority of the population. And they say all these things like, OK, but that may be true, but you're not going, you know, reality, as you pointed out just a few minutes ago you know, the, the Senate is the Senate, you know, there's like one per state. You're not going to change that by screaming and yelling and rioting. You're not going to change the fact that the people who grow your food and the people who live in these places are not going to just change what they do or think or, or anything, never mind how they vote because you burnt a bunch of buildings down. Like that doesn't, that's not persuasive. And I think the media feeds into that. They're making a lot of money. First of all, and what cracks me up is how many of them are like, oh, terrible, you know, uh, money making corporations, except for Microsoft and except for Facebook and except for this and except for Pfizer and except for that one. Right. And I'm like, oh, I see. So we're picking our winners and losers based on ideology, right. but they're not they don't have any principles. They're I not mean, really 
principled about this stuff. Well, I also, I mean, I think that maybe the biggest macro thing that, that needs to be acknowledged is that, um, <clears throat> you know, the basic vision that has undergirded the Democratic Party for uh, 40 years, uh, maybe a little less than that, but for a long time, um, has been um, the idea that there's an emerging Democratic majority, which is made up of voters of color, and that right. voters of color are um, consistent Democrats. And so as the portion of the population grows and grows, the Democratic electoral advantage will grow and grow, and Republicans will be forced either to moderate and to become more like Democrats in their policies, or they'll die. Um, this has not come to pass. Uh, uh, and the biggest uh, reason for that is that it turns out that, in fact, um, uh, voters of color are not um, born uh, registered Democrats, that uh, they have agency. And so shocking. Um, yeah. Um, what's a truly dramatic uh, change uh, in our lifetimes between uh, Barack Obama's uh, presidential election in 2012 and the Biden-Trump election in uh, 2020, uh, Hispanic voters swung to the Republicans by 18 points. Right? Mm -hmm. um, that's a that's a kind of dramatic change you just don't see in those kind of demographics. And even uh, to a considerably smaller degree, and Black voters are still the most uh, consistent voting bloc, if anything you can look at, being pro-Democrat, um, even Black voters, particularly Black men, started to swing towards Trump um, in 2020 compared to years past. Um, Asian voters have always been uh, uh, much more complicated in terms of their political leanings than anything else. I think we saw in San Francisco when they've rejected the um, uh, <clears throat> the uh, you know anti-test, anti-algebra, um, anti-higher math, anti-standards, anti you know um, <clears throat> gifted and talented, etc. Where uh, voters rejected that enough, Asian voters in particular rejected that enough to kick out a couple members of the uh, school board. Um, yeah. uh, you know, certainly you can't look at that population and say, "Oh yeah, these are born Democrats who we can rely on." Uh, and so, you know, you get into a scenario where number one, uh, rural white voters, even though they're a shrinking pop part of the population, remain an extremely important demographic, particularly given how the electoral college map looks, right? So, uh, you know, a, a, like a, a, a Ohio voter, uh, because of the, just the way that the map works and mm -hmm. uh, what states are reliable or what aren't, their vote is just vastly more valuable for the Democrats than a vote in California, right? Um, so there you've got that. Also, you know, um, even with the demographic decline, 70% uh, of the electorate is still white, right? So the country is less white than that. But the electorate, people who have the right to vote, uh, uh, are <coughs> whether because a, fel a felony disenfranchisement, you know, disenfranchisement of felons, people who are undocumented, whatever, um, the 70% of the people who vote, uh, who can't vote are are white and also uh, in terms of voting patterns, consistent voters are even more white than that for a variety of reasons. So, you know, I just think that um, the Democrats have to get into a position where they're able to sell themselves to people who don't look like them, who don't have a subscription to the New York Times. Um, I, I don't know if the internal dynamics of the party will allow them to do that. I mean, that the party has become captured by an activist class and people right. complain, well, you know, you say that, but like, Joe Manchin is still the most powerful person in the party. And still we have a very sort of meek and moderate 
legislative agenda. And I would say- He only matters because they don't understand people. Right. Well, I mean, the thing is, is like, both those things can be true. I mean, this is a point that I've been trying to make for a long that's time. That's true. Yeah, that's that, true. Like, the public face of the party can be a very radical, college-educated, urbanite, elite um, public face, while the, the legislative apparatus of the party remains um, beholden to centrists like Manchin and Kristen Simina. And, and this is, I would say, the worst of both worlds, right? Because, because your, the perception of Democrats is somebody who works for you know, New York Magazine and went to Swarthmore and lives in uh, <clears throat> Williamsburg in Brooklyn and, you know, um, exactly. and watches all the same shows as the people like them and has the same vocabulary and the same sort of tired uh, social justice vocabulary, while you don't even get an aggressive legislation agenda out of that, right? So you can't actually deliver to people and their core economic needs because the party is constantly afraid of. I mean, so we had the child tax credit, um, which was potentially a transformative program. Um, and it cut uh, child poverty uh, by a third in this country, but we only had it for one year and Joe Manson Manchin won't countenance it. So you don't get the voters who might've said, wow, suddenly I'm not in poverty anymore because I have kids and I can pay for, you know, uh, for childcare or whatever. Um, we don't get those voters, but we do also get like people turn, turn go on Facebook and look on le lefty Facebook and everyone's talking about how whiteness will always be the enemy, whatever. Uh, so it's a, it's a, it's a perception of radicalism without any of the benefits of radicalism. Right. Right. And I mean, obviously there'll be people who say, yay, like, thank God. But at the same time, I think, as with so many things these days, everything's upside down. You know, if you genuinely want to help people, the people who are in there doing it and dominating the doing of it are doing the opposite of it. And when it comes to education, that's what gets me frustrated because I look at all of these things and I say, you know, I really care. I really do care about keeping kids out of prison. I really do want kids to go on and have all the doors open to them that they might want open to them based on their abilities and effort. You know, in other words, no, no arbitrary obstacle in their way um, to achieve whatever they were capable of. But if you're not going to teach them to read, if that's not like the fundamental thing you're going to work on, forget all the other social justice stuff, all the other equity, all the cosmetic things about how many teachers look like the kid or how many books reflect, you know, people getting beat up by cops or whatever. It's irrelevant because you're not giving them the one thing they need, which is literacy. Right. And but then I'll be called like, well, you're a racist because you don't want these books and this practice and restorative justice and all this. I'm like, no, I just want what works. And right. I know what we're, we know what works. We have generations of research to show us what actually produces better outcomes. Right. I mean, I it, the thing that gets me is that there is both a uh, demand that you use that kind of uh, language, those concepts, those texts, et cetera. And there's still like a vestigial um, commitment to pretending that you don't have a political bias, right? Like I know, right? It's very strange. It's like um, I'm not. I I oh, I don't have a political bias in my classroom, but I think because what what they always sort of say is, you know, what they believe is outside of politics, right? So if they say. Um, you know, I'm going to teach my kids that um, it's okay to be trans. And obviously, I believe that it's okay to be trans. But if, if you know, if they're going to make that affirmative argument in their classroom, right, and you say, well, you know, 
that's a that's a, a that's a sort of lefty idea. That's a political bias that you're showing. And you know, we're supposed to our public school classrooms are supposed to be these neutral spaces. And they'll say, oh, the idea that being trans is okay is not a political idea, right? And the thing is, is like it doesn't matter if you are really sure that that's the right position. I'm really sure that's the right position, but I also recognize that it is a inherently deeply political idea, and that parents have something to say about it. I mean, the thing that disturbs me the most about all this stuff is the number of teachers who have been caught saying to their students, "Don't tell your parents about what we talked about today," and it's like the idea that parents are ever going to be cool with not just the stuff that you might be saying in secret, but the idea that a teacher should feel that they can say to their students, oh, this is just between us and you can't tell your parents. That is going to get at, I mean, you know, th th that is where the, the rubber really meets the road. I mean, there's a lot of people who are going to say, like, <clears throat> they'll put the, the Black Lives Matter sign in their window and they'll have the, you know, in this house, we believe sign out front and they'll, you know, donate money to the Rainbow Coalition or whatever. Um, <clears throat> but if you fuck with their kid, right? Like if, <laughs> yeah, right. if, if you compel them, if, if, if you make them feel that you, you are in some way endangering the life that you've imagined for your children, the background will be very fierce. And this is one of the things, again, to bring up the San Francisco recall of those school board members is that, um, uh, it became apparent very quickly that like a lot of people supported it who didn't say so uh, say publicly, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah. people, you know, this is something that happens more and more often is that when you create such a, this is, you know, the idea in 2016 of the shy Trump voter, right? Why did Trump out uh, outperform the polls by so much? One of the theories is just that, um, you know, people don't feel comfortable telling another human being on the phone, I'm voting for Trump. But when they get into the voting booth, they can just pull that lever and do it anonymously. And I think it's the same way with this shit where, like, I just think that um, <clears throat> there's a lot of, quote unquote, conservatism that's going to emerge from people when this stuff really, really. I mean, like, so, again, with, the, you know, these Asian-American parents who not just in San Francisco, but all across the country are leading the charge against shuttering gifted and talented programs, They're, you know, or. Um, making it impossible to take algebra in eighth grade, which is something that they've done in some places, which in turn makes it almost impossible for them to take calculus in high school, which in turn makes it really hard to be attractive to colleges. These parents are saying, like, they're not, you know, generally speaking, registered Republicans, but they're saying, look, um, I came here to work my ass off to give my kid the opportunity to flourish academically and then climb the ladder. And you're trying to pull the rug out from under me and you're calling it equity. And I'm not going to let that happen. And I think you're really going to see a lot of that stuff coming up. Yeah. Well, I think, too, that um, people have taken the words like liberal and conservative and they don't really mean anything anymore. Yeah. And, you know, so like that's why I said they don't understand people because there's nothing. They just it just doesn't mean what they say it's, it means. They're focusing on things that aren't going to help people. So a liberal, let's say, who really genuinely wants to you know, allow people opportunities and uplift or whatever, if that's their thing, they're going to look at it and say, but it's not you're closing doors, you're slamming doors, it's not working, the, the kids are not learning, etc. And then if you're more conservative, you're saying, you want to persuade me to say it's okay to be trans or say, you know, abortion, whatever it is you want to say. But here's the thing, the way you're presenting it to my kid is not just it's okay, but you're saying that to my five-year-old. So in other words, you're, you're not even taking into account age appropriateness 
of your message right. and you're introducing topics and introducing them in a, in a sort of dark way or in a way where, like you said, where Shh, don't tell mom and dad. So it's the way they're going about doing it as opposed to just allowing it to evolve through discussion. You can have a Socratic conversation, for example, with middle school or high school kids where you present some pretty controversial topics. And as long as the teacher doesn't project their view into the kids and says, you know, well, some people think this and some people think, let's talk about it. You could do that. And I actually believe there are conservative parents who would be like, you know, it's public school. It's America. I'm not going to vent my spleen over it. You brought up Marxism in the classroom. Okay. But it's when the teacher goes, this is the only right way. And everybody else is a racist and they hang a, you know, a, a flag of the Soviet Union or something like that. Right. And, and let's all pray to Angela Davis. That's when people get twitchy and say, you know, I was willing to go there with you as long as you were just having a conversation. But now you're like, this is the way. Right. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I think it's important to say is like particularly, you know, the stuff comes a lot of the stuff emerges from education departments at colleges and universities. I took a lot of education. Well, I did a lot of stuff in the sort of education world uh, at Purdue when I was getting my Ph.D., um, it's really hard to go through such a program and not be a relentlessly social justice focused person. Um, even before 2020, so I graduated from my PhD program in 2015. Um, <clears throat> even before George Floyd and 2020 and Black Lives Matter and the explosion in interest in trans rights and um, Me Too and all this stuff, um, you know, uh, the pressure to be the most woke person in your program, especially when you're on the job market, was enormous. Um, you know, uh, in almost all of these jobs now, uh, they have um, this requirement that one of the things that you write as part of your application is a diversity statement. And that diversity statement, um, if for every practical purpose, must reflect, um, you know, uh, whiteness is a force in the universe uh, that causes all of these problems. Uh, men are inherently uh, patriarchal, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> uh, like queerness is the uh, is the antidote to the virus of heterosexuality. Those are extreme versions, but that stuff is stuff I heard all the time getting a Ph.D. in the humanities in the mm -hmm. 2010s. Um, that vision of politics is mandated if you're going to get these jobs. Right. Um, it, it is yep. is just unthinkable to go through that process where. Mm -hmm. Um, there are, you know, uh, a thousand applicants for every job, right, where uh, the conditions are brutal, where you're making terrible money, whether you're a PhD student still or a postdoc, um, where you're desperate to get a job doing anything that you can to get in your foot in the door. You're not you, it's just you cannot sit down and write a, 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 an essay and say, well, I think diversity is important, but I think the definition of diversity in the academy is actually kind of messed up. And uh, I, I actually think that we're trying to enforce a certain vision of diversity. You will never see the inside of, uh, of a faculty office ever. Right. Um, yeah. yeah, there's just and, um, you know. You go to you, you, again. This was um, you know seven or eight years ago now, but you you, you go to um, 
conferences uh, and uh, every panel is about some aspect of social justice and every award uh, goes to uh, a candidate who can represent themselves as a diversity, uh, as increasing diversity for the award and is doing a paper about social justice. I mean, it, it is a completely hegemonic space. And so, you know, there just isn't any such thing as like a dissident who comes out of an education graduate program. What you do have is you have people who want to be public school teachers. Uh, and so what they do is they grit their teeth for, you know, three years of masters and until so they get their certification and uh, and then they can go and be public school teachers and actually live their, their actual politics. But um, the experience of people in teacher training programs, um, just learning never to challenge anything because it's just not worth the hassle and time and heartache, um, mm -hmm. I think is just core to the whole profession. Yep, absolutely. And uh, I mean, I feel like I'm living proof. I went to University of Pennsylvania at 1989, 90, graduated 90 for, with my master's degree. And they were having a street palafrere. And I remember my professor saying, you know, teaching is a political act and you're going into the classroom to be an activist for social justice. And this is in 89. And um, I remember thinking, wow, that's not what I thought I was doing. I mean, I, I guess if I thought about it, I thought, well, sure. I'm going to make sure these kids are literate so then they can vote. I'm going to make sure they're numerate so they can vote. You know what I mean? Like the whole thing was, I get it. Yeah, we can't really have a voting, responsible voting population and maintain our freedom if people can't participate. But that's as far as my brain took it, right? But by the end of the program, it was made sort of clear to me, no, it's really meant to be these specific ideas. And then once I went out into the classroom that was drilled into my brain even further by union members, you know, like you mm -hmm. have to join the union, you did then, you don't now. And I left. I left because I couldn't work that way. I just, I wouldn't work that way. I was like, I, I'm not that kind of person. I can't work in that environment where I have to think and fall in line and toe the line. I just, that wasn't going to be my life. So I left. you know, Paulo Freire is interesting for reference for me because, um, completely independent of like the specific political considerations of his work. Right. Um, I just think he's a terribly overrated thinker and not a very good mm. writer. And I think yeah. pedagogy of the oppressed, I think is just a um, uh, one long laundry list of cliches after another. Um, and that's like, you know, that is my engagement with the text as a text, as a thinker and as a person. And it is not in any sense like, Oh, I reject this woke garbage. It's that I don't, like, I think that everything that he said was something that had been said before and that um, to the extent that he had any, his actual practical uh, implications for how to be a teacher were totally impractical for almost anyone in the teaching profession. And and yet, um, you know, and you're supposed to be, I mean, you know, a big part of grad school is, you know, learning to think and write critically. Um, mm -hmm. But um he's the kind of person that you just, you don't criticize, right? Like I, I definitely would not have criticized Gloria Anzaldúa or Bell Hooks either when I was in my PhD program, right. which, you know, okay. is kind of contrary to the whole idea of the of the whole of the thing, but you know, whatever. So why are you in graduate school if you're not supposed to be having, you know, if you're not supposed to be challenging things and, and, and thinking, you're not there to just repeat or regurgitate what somebody just said. I mean, that's, and then what happens is the pipeline for teaching is full of people who've come out of colleges, well, all the way at this point now, kindergarten through 12th grade, college and grad school maybe, where they've been taught that the highest value is to be approved of by your supposedly 
you know, better, more uh, intelligent, you know, professors. And that's what you do. It's a kind of hero worship. It's not, which feels quasi-religious. Mm-hmm. There's something about the way I see teachers, you know, if you talk about TikTok teachers, for example, the ones who are like, I am doing this. It's very dogmatic and it feels like, um, it just feels like religious ritual to me. Yeah. I mean, look, I, you know, I joined, uh, the field uh, uh, that has several names, but I, the one that I prefer is just writing studies. And, uh, and particularly, I had an interest in empirical research and quantitative research. I still do. Um, and I was I did because I had been told that that was a place that writing, student writing is really taken seriously. Uh, and what I discovered very quickly is that was not true. Um, you know, I wanted to write about um, classroom techniques that might inc- improve uh, scores on writing tests, you know, um, and looking at, you know, correlating things, for example. Um, what I found was that, uh, in the field, the research that was getting celebrated and published was like, um, the rhetoric of Dr. Who, um, was, uh, absolutely incomprehensible theory, uh, papers that I I just, you know, speaking as someone who reads, um, who's read a lot of theory and is very conversant and a lot of stuff that I would, it was just, I, I would just, have no idea what was being argued or why would it, when it would and you're like, I'm paying for this. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, uh, I was, uh, you know, another, a big set of things. Um, video games have become very big in the field because you could get kids to sign up for classes that had video games in the title and they really needed enrollments. And so you had a lot of people who would sort of come out right out and say, Oh, I play video games and call it research. But like, you know, the actual quality of their output, the intellectual output, quality was nil. Um, and yeah, and, and tons and tons and tons of social justice stuff about how we don't respect black bodies in, uh, you know, in three-dimensional space or whatever the fuck, you know, right. that people wanted to come up with. There was just no, so one of the things that happened when I was, um, I, you know, I, I ended up taking a ton of classes in applied linguistics and sort of, and in education and sort of, mm-hmm. My, applying my interest there because I just had found nothing for value to me in my own field. And to their credit, my professors were very um, supportive of me doing whatever I wanted to do. But at some mm-hmm. point when I was, you know, really disillusioned, I started to sort of ask around, like, what is a piece of new knowledge that has been generated in this field recently, right? What, what is mm-hmm. something that we know to be true that we right. didn't know to be true 20 years ago? Um, nobody said the same things, Right. Uh, well, to the degree that anyone said anything that was the same, it would always be some version of, well, we're, we're racist and, and sexist and the, the academy is, uh, is the patriarchy. But, you know, it, the, the only things that, w- that people would share would be that. But there was absolutely nothing. There was literally nothing that they could point to like, OK, how students write and uh, the skills they absorb and what works the best in the college writing classroom, which, you know, was the pretext under which these departments or these programs are funded by the universities, right? Is they say, you know, these, these programs have tended to split off from English, uh, uh, departments by telling the universities, English departments don't give a shit about writing. They're so caught up in their weird theory and stuff like that. And the, the uh, professors don't want to teach writing anyway. So we'll take over that. Um, mm-hmm. But then, you know, they just do this, the same thing happens because the coin of the realm in in the, the academy is being as abstract and unconnected to practicality as possible. Um, and so like we just, you know, we weren't researching anything and it's just, it's unfair. 
unthinkable that you could go to a bunch of biology people and say, what new knowledge do we have 20 years ago? And they wouldn't come up with anything, right? Like they would be able to rattle off a list of things that, of like things that they know that they didn't know before. It's the same in uh, computer science or engineering, whatever. And even in more sort of softer sciences, I, I do believe, you know, for all the problems with the, you know, the, um, value crisis, et cetera, in psychology, they would be able to tell us things that they had discovered that they think are, are true about the mind that we didn't know before. Um, right. So that was, you know, but again, like if I had um, been willing, if I had been able to live with myself, if I had just banged the social justice drum, if I had just played the role and I had been a good boy and um, not published constantly on criticisms of the social justice movement. Um, I would have been able to get a tenure track job and I'd be there right now and I'd have tenure and I, you know, I would produce um, every once in a while, I'd produce a meaningless article that maybe five people would read ever and uh, enjoy a very comfortable life. Right. And I think that's that's a really good place to start to wrap up because you've now got your sub stack, which I hope all of you watching will subscribe to. It's fantastic. It is Freddie DeBoer, which is, you know, his name. And um, what I love about it is there's just always, you're always asking questions or looking at things and just saying what you think is true. So what you just said about, you know, what do you know now that we know is true that we didn't know before? Uh, you're one you're one of the people I love to read because you make me think. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what a lot of people are craving right now. I think a lot of, there really are a lot of people um, who it's like music to just hear someone say something true because we're getting very cynical and it's like propaganda. We know we're being lied to by just about everybody in mainstream media. So when you, when I go to your Substack, I'm like, yes, that's a true statement. You know, like I can't disagree with that. Or even the things that I might look at a little differently. I'm like, he's telling me truth in terms of just being blunt. In other words, you're not sugarcoating things. And I don't feel like you're, um, in service to any agenda and it's absolutely refreshing. So that's something that I think I'm hoping that, uh, you know, by virtue of, you know, looking at your success and everything that, that, that gives me hope that tells me there are people out there that want this and that's good because if we can keep that intellectual activity going and if we can remind ourselves that that's what we need to give our kids, we need to give our kids the same degree of curiosity and, critical think real critical thinking not the critical like take it all apart thinking mm-hmm. um we we have a chance at least that's what i think what do you think <laughs> thanks i hope you're right and i really appreciate that and i appreciate you having me on yeah well thank you so much for coming and spend this time with us and i hope you have a fantastic rest of your day and weekend and uh this will be up on replay and thank you everybody for coming please like share and comment have a great day thanks